I have CPTSD, complex PTSD from the multiple traumas that I face. Starting from the age four, the shit after shit after shit after shit after shit. Like, when does it stop? My name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, are not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. I'm going to keep trying. Thank you very much to all the attempt survivors who have joined me here on this podcast since we launched in July of 2020. And of course, to all of you who tune in, whether this is your first time or you listen every week, thank you for your support. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com or on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. And if anybody emailed us from Thursday the 24th, Up until at some point today, the 27th, this is Sunday, I'm recording this, please resend your email. We may not have gotten it. There was a tech hiccup. It's all worked out now, but I want to make sure if you did reach out, we get it. Thank you for that. Apologize for any inconvenience. Now, we are talking about suicide, so this may not be a good fit for everybody. Please take that into account before you listen. But I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. Today, I am talking with Jessica. Jessica lives in Illinois, and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Hey, Jessica, what's going on? Not much. How about you? I'm doing all right. So you're in your car? Yes. (laughs) Are you doing that just to have some space to talk openly? I'm disabled, and I live with my parents in a two-bedroom bungalow-type house, so... If you're open to it, I'd love to hear more. Like when you put in suicide into the search function, whether it's Facebook or or on a podcast platform, are you looking to find ways to do it? You're looking for people who are going through something similar, something else? I think for me, I was looking for people going through something similar, somebody that I could connect to that wouldn't be so scared. Because when you mention you want to hurt yourself, there's people that they just immediately shut off and get scared and, and like run the opposite way. And yeah, it's hard to connect to people that have going through that, you know? Yeah. I wonder why they get so scared typically. I don't know. I do too. I wonder if it is because they don't have those thoughts. They don't deal with those thoughts. They don't deal with constant pestering of worthlessness that you feel when you're in that point, you know? I think for them, it's harder to relate. So a lot of times they just shut down and run away. And, you know, it's easier to ghost somebody than it is to say, I don't feel comfortable talking about this. Open-ended question. So like, where do you want to start that part of the conversation? The Jessica story, so to speak. I was sexually abused, non-familial as a child by two separate people. So I do have those two separate traumas as a starting point. And then when I was 12, we ended up moving to Georgia. Um, My dad got transferred for a job and we moved down there. My whole world was just like completely uprooted. Mm -hmm. You know, I had my friends, I had my school, I had my family. I rode my bike from my, our house to my grandma's house. Like it was no big deal. We moved to Georgia. I didn't have anybody. I started getting bullied and made fun of because, you know, I had a Northern accent in the South, damn Yankees, you know? What, uh, did you go from Illinois? Yeah, we moved down there from Illinois. I was up visiting for the summer and my best friend at the time had continued with our friend group that I had been in and everything. But once I moved, I was ostracized. When I was here for the summer, I wasn't invited to go do any of the stuff that they were doing to hang out with them or anything. I remember one night I was I was so sad. I was heartbroken. I was crying my eyes out because all I wanted to do was spend time with my friends. I was 12 years old. You know, I took half a bottle of one of those 500 pill Tylenol bottles. My brother found me 
doing it, tried to rip the bottle out of my hand. Like, I just remember the pills going flying across my grandma's kitchen. My grandma was gone when it happened. But when she got home, she made me walk to the backyard and stick my finger down my throat and throw everything up. Nobody took me to the ER. Nobody took me to the Mm. hospital. And it wasn't talked about. Get that shit out of your system. And then let's just move on with things. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember my cousin sitting there saying, why does she get all the attention? It wasn't attention. Like in my head, it wasn't attention. It was, I don't want to hurt. At 12 years old, you said like, you don't want to hurt. Is it, I just don't want to hurt. And I don't know how else to not hurt. Or I actually want to die. Is it one or the other? Or is it kind of both or neither? I think in that moment, I just wanted to die. Like I just didn't want, I didn't want, I didn't want to be here. Right. If the perfect human being was around to help you at 12 years old, when I say perfect human being, I actually don't know what I mean, but you know, the person that not magically all your pain would have gone away, but the person who just knows how to engage with you and connect with you and maybe make you feel a little less shitty, what would they have said or done? Do you have any idea? Or was it nothing would have helped no matter what? I don't know, because, you know, it's like I think to myself, maybe if they would have said you'll get better friends as you grow up, but that doesn't even always happen. I mean, you still have to deal with those situations. I think if maybe somebody would have sat me down and said, this is how we're going to cope with these feelings. Again, it was the 80s. It was 87. So or actually it was 88 because, yeah, it was 88. It wasn't even talked about at that time. Like I had never even honestly heard of suicide at that time. There's nobody in my family that's ever other than me that's admitted to attempting. And do you know if people in your family have tried? Not to my knowledge. Yeah. Great grandmother. They said they said she was in the hospital for TB, but my mom said she may have been in the psychiatric hospital for a breakdown. But that was the <laughs> what? 20s. And I don't know for sure, but probably even less talked about. You know? Even more swept under the rug. I mean, like I said, right. it was played off as TB. So. Right. Yeah. And so like you could understand why people around you couldn't necessarily know what to do or say. At the same time, though, people, and this isn't a knock on your family at all, but people can listen and show some empathy and you might not have all the answers and it might be really confusing. But Mm -hmm. when you tell me that they are or share with me that they moved on, didn't talk about it, didn't seek treatment. I mean, for me, the way I'm thinking is, of course, there's going to be another problem at some point. (laughs) Probably not just going to go away. Probably not. No, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't fix itself. Like I had, I had issues and a lot of uh, the assault was, uh, assaults were, were blocked. Like I didn't have memories. All I would have was a flashback of a still picture. And mm-hmm. at, at 12 and 13, I didn't know how to process that. I didn't know how to tell anybody that I didn't even know what it meant, you know? Right. So you dealt with some sexual abuse and then you moved at 12 years old first attempt, took the pills, puked them out. What goes, how how do we go from the first attempt to the second attempt? How much time goes by? My second attempt, I was about, I was a sophomore in high school. We had, I had just moved high schools because they built a new high school my freshman year and my sophomore year. And I had um, two new friends. One of my friends was very emotionally manipulative I got caught up in it. You know, she made me feel like shit about myself when I already felt like shit about myself. Took pills in high school at school. Is this in Georgia or Illinois? It was in Georgia. So now you're a sophomore in high school. Take pills like in the bathroom or something? Yeah, we were allowed to carry like Tylenol and aspirin and things like that at school in school back then. They didn't. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a big deal. And I just had some in my purse and I just went into the bathroom and swallowed them down. Hmm. And then a little bit later, it was probably about 20 minutes afterwards, I started to feel, you know, I was freaking out. I'm like, what have I done? And I told somebody else, look, this is what I did. And they went to a counselor, one of the, you know, guidance counselors and told the guidance counselor, they pulled me out of class. Um, Again, nobody called for an ambulance or anything. They sent me back to class after they called my dad and told my dad what I had done. And we lived outside of Atlanta at the time. And my dad actually worked in Atlanta. So my dad had to come from Atlanta to pick me up, which was about a half hour to a 45 minute drive. They sent me back to class to wait until my dad got there. Mm. And I was in Spanish class 
And I remember falling asleep. They were taking a test or something. And I just fell asleep on my desk. Like I couldn't stay awake. Somebody next to me said something to me and it caused me to jump up. And I'm, I'm like, I don't know, laid back down until my dad got there. After that one, they, we were in church. I grew up in a very religious household, but not overtly religious. They tried to take me to a religious counselor. I think they talked to the church. You know, my mom made it known that she knew about my attempt at my grandma's house, even though I didn't know she knew. I didn't think she knew. I didn't think my grandma had told her. When your dad picks you up at school, what does he say? Remember? I don't. I remember us driving home and we were coming up on a stop sign and he made a dad joke. Look, stop ahead. And that's the only thing I remember about the drive home. Mm -hmm. He didn't know what to do. No. Yeah. He didn't know what to say. Yeah. I mean, it's not a knock on anybody. I know I, I get vocal about that. I probably should be a little nicer because I think most people, not all, most mean well. They just don't know what the hell they're doing. Right. So your family decides to one place that might help is the church. <laughs> well, they sent me to a Christian counselor. And the only question I really remember her asking me was if I were an animal, what kind of an animal would my friends think I were was? Don't you have to ask your friends for that? That's what I was like. I don't know. Like, I, I don't I don't. What do you say? What was the answer you gave? Do you remember? A snake. I don't know why. And I'm sure that the, the Christian counselor followed up with another question after that, right? Why why a snake? Probably. And I honestly, I don't remember what I said. I remember staring at the floor and just like mumbling. And you're 14 years old and you're like, what the <laughs> fuck is going on? Yeah. And it's like, you're not doing anything for me because what my friends think of me doesn't really matter at this point. I need help. <laughs> Did you get any kind of help? Mm -mm. I didn't go back. I wouldn't go back. I refused. Part of that, too, was because, you know, again, it's it's the 80s still and, and insurance isn't a big thing. My parents made too much money for Medicaid, but but not enough to cover. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. I'm the oldest of three. And so, you know, there's five of us and they don't have enough to cover for insurance for all of us. So they were going to have to pay out of pocket for this counselor. And I'm like, you know, I even at 14, I knew enough to know that my parents couldn't afford it. So you don't go mm -mm. and then you suck it up and do the best you can you go back to school. Mm -hmm. Guess what I'm thinking going to happen again. Mm -hmm. If you didn't tell me before that you had another attempt, I'd be thinking she's probably going to have another attempt. Now, <laughs> could things have changed? You get a little older. Sure. That happens. Mm -hmm. But let me let me back up for one sec if I can. Mm -hmm. And if, if I'm talking too much, tell me to shut up. When, if someone were to ask you, and this is a tough question, I know, why did you try to end your life? At that point, at 14, I had been bullied so bad in school as a child at that age. You know, you develop and boys are, are not taught how to control themselves because it's played off as, oh, boys will be boys, mm -hmm. you know? So I was consistently picked on and made fun of and, and picked at and, you know, things like that. And my self-esteem was shit. It's so hard because like, you know, my parents were hard workers. They both had jobs, you know, they both worked hard, but we still, we were living in a place, even in a time at that time, like, like it's hard to make ends meet. I was picked on for, you know, the clothes that I had, the clothes I didn't have, all of that stuff. Yeah. Well, once you're a target, you're a target, right? Mm -hmm. So did you make it through high school? I did, but okay. I, at 716, I met the man I thought I was going to marry. We had a very good relationship, but when I met him, he was a brain cancer survivor. He was in remission when we met and started dating. The summer before my senior year, his cancer came back and I watched him die along with everything else I had hoped for. And, you know, having been in the church and raised, you know, oh, we pray better and, you know, God's going to fix this. And it doesn't work that way. And I wasn't prepared for the realities of it. I was 17. I wasn't prepared to watch him suffer. I wasn't prepared for any of it, you know? How old was he? He was 23. <laughs> that's a young, that's a young guy. Yeah. And I know a lot of people say stuff about age gap relationships, but when you have been through trauma, your brain doesn't process things the same way. He was the, the sweetest. He opened my doors for me everywhere we went. You know, he was a 
perfect gentleman. Um, we were not intimate before he died because again, you know, religious release reasons and stuff like that. So there was nothing like anything inappropriate as far as that was concerned. And, and I hope you don't take this the wrong way. You're, it's been several decades and you're all kind of apologizing, you know, like that. I hear that. I'm like, huh? and I do the same thing. Nah, you're right. I mean, I guess these things, they don't, they leave their mark. So you yeah. watched him die. You were a young lady. You watched him pass away. I mean, what do you do? So you're still in high school. Are you able to finish? Are you able to move on and do something else? What happens? He passed in September and that October, it was September of 92. And that October, um, I was at the youth pastor's house. I was staying more at her house than I was at my mom and dad's because my dad and I don't always get along. We have conflicts and stuff sometimes. And so it was just easier for me to stay at her house. And I had a bottle of Advil. And this is the attempt that not a lot of people know about, but I took the bottle of Advil and I laid down on the couch in her basement thinking it sucks that this is where they're going to find me, but I can't do this. And then I woke up. I don't know how. What's it like to wake up though and then be alive after wanting to die? I think honestly, at that point, I told myself that this isn't what he would want. Michael, I don't think this isn't how he would want me to be. That was the last like actual attempt that I had throughout high school. Um, and I did graduate high school. I did quit for a week. But I went back. Why doesn't anybody know about that one as opposed to the others? I didn't tell anybody I did it because I couldn't believe I woke up. Another weird question from Sean. Do you wish you had died on the couch that day? Um, there are multiple times in my depths of despair that I have said, out loud, I should have died in 1992. Mm -hmm. After other events that have happened in my life, I mean, yeah, sometimes I do. Other times, I look at, at my grandson when he smiles and or he says, "No, no, you're here," and gives me a hug, and I'm like, "Okay, I'm okay," you know. Well, if you have a grandson, then there's more to the story. Obviously, you're not going to include every little part of your life because, again, we don't have 10 hours, but <laughs> there's going to be a, at least one child who then has a child. See how I do the math there with the grandchild? <laughs> Although there could have been an adoption. So anyhow, when you get out of high school, are you the kind of person who's like, I'm going to college? Are you going, what do you do? And my dad was like, you guys need to go to college when you graduate and things, but he didn't push it too hard. Um, my dad was a veteran, had talked about going back to school and stuff on the GI Bill while we were down in Georgia. And then we moved back to Illinois. Like my parents moved back first. I stayed down in Georgia for a little while. And then I came back up here when I mean, my oldest child came around. And it wasn't just me raising her, my mom, my dad, um, and my sister. Like we all lived in the house together and it was her and her brother. And she's in her 20s now, if my math is correct, right? She's 26. And she has a child. She has two. And so those are your grandchildren. Mm -hmm. They call me Nona. And so they all and everyone lives in Springfield area. They live right behind where I'm looking over there like you can see it. <laughs> they live right behind our house. Um, there's all an right. alley in between our houses. And then I have a 17 year old that was adopted. Her adoption went through when she was five. Okay. But I've had her since she was three. And so and have you been raising them alone or with the help of parents or a partner? And just my parents. I pretty much stayed single after Michael died. Really? Yeah. I had a very hard time. I tried to date when I first moved back to Illinois. I tried to date and I had a whole mental breakdown over it. Like I, mm. I couldn't do it. I mean, I just, I felt like I was betraying, <laughs> you know? So when you went back to Illinois, you're a mom. And so for the last 20 something years, what's your life like? I mean, cause I, here's the thing. You told me when you were 18, you had your third attempt the one that no one knows about or very few people know about. And not long ago, you put suicide into Facebook and to a podcast platform. I'm yeah. guessing, tell me if I'm wrong. It's been a rocky road the whole time. Yes, but no, like my ideations weren't too bad um, for a while. And then in 2000, I got pregnant. My son was still born when I was six months pregnant with him. So that's another, you know, trauma to add to all the other traumas. And I lost my son in September, which is the same month that Michael died. So Not September is very triggering. Sure. Mm. Yeah. How are you coping? All right, let me back up. Do you ever get diagnosed with anything? 
when after I lost my son, I went back to counseling for a little bit and I had some ideations, but I was able to work through them. I had mm-hmm. a, I had a better support system, I think, at that time. Well, I shouldn't say that. I basically drank through it. <laughs> Did you ever get a diagnosis of anything that you thought was right or accurate? No, it was I was basically diagnosed as major depressive disorder yeah. with manic lows and suicidal ideations. Did you ever go to a hospital for that? So after I lost my son, I, you know, was up and down and stuff like that for a while. I think because at that time, you know, my oldest daughter was here and I mean, it hit me. Don't get me wrong. It hit me hard. I mean, like my world was torn apart. I couldn't work for a while. I would go to the cemetery every day and I absolutely hated leaving the cemetery because it it was like there's a piece of me laying in the ground there, you know. I wish I would have had him cremated now because then I could have had him with me. But at that time, I was so out of it. It was such a fog. It was a four years of a fog. And I think that's why it was my ideations weren't that bad. Mm. Is because it was just a fog, you know, like I was on autopilot. I was taking a child to school and going to work and, you know, trying to pay bills and make ends meet. Kind of work were you doing? When I when I first lost him, um, I had been working daycare and I didn't go back um, because that was a little too hard. Right. Um, and then I worked for the school district very briefly. It just it was it, it was in a very and I hate saying it like that, but it was a very hard area. And so there was a lot of issues and stuff and I couldn't I couldn't handle it. And so I left the school district and then I worked for a chiropractor and she was horrible just horrid, just mean, you know, on my son, the first, the first anniversary of losing my son, I said, can I have this day off? And she's like, do you really need the whole day for it? I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I do. He was born September 13th of 2000. And so in 2001, September 11th happened two days before what would have been his anniversary. And that's, she was mad at me that I wanted, mm-hmm. it was a Thursday because that or, yeah, because Tuesday was the 11th. I remember that because we only worked half days those days. That's how I remember September 11th. Wow. Yeah. You had mentioned as you're rolling through the 2000s and then into the 2010s, there were some other major events that happened that were especially challenging. First, I got a house fire in 2010 and lost everything. I had a foster child that set my house on fire at that time. Oh, dear. We lost everything, including a cat. I became disabled in 2012. I got sick. I started coughing and couldn't stop coughing. And I went to like prompt care and they they like, they took a scan of my lungs and the doctor's like, do you work around chicken coops? And I'm like, the heck kind of question is that? He's like, I didn't think you did. He's like, but we're going to send you to the hospital um, because there's not much we can do here. And I'm like, all right. So my mom takes me to the ER they knew I was coming. They were expecting me. They put me in a room and everything. They they do a CAT scan. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing I know, they're coming in and I am being moved to a isolation room. They didn't know what was wrong. And the the options were cancer, sarcoidosis, or tuberculosis. So I went through six months of hell, medical hell. I was in the hospital the first time for nine days. I had five CT scans. I had a nuclear body scan. What did um, you have? A sarcoidosis is the name of it. What is that? It's an autoimmune disease. Basically, your my immune system attacks my body. Wow. And now I'm stuck with, I had to have back surgery. I had a spinal fusion in 2015 and I'm waiting on a hip replacement. Jesus. And so, which leads to uh, my last attempt that I had right. was in November of 2020. And that is, so we're going 25 plus years. Yeah. More. I had ideations. I've been hospitalized. I went to the hospital a couple of times for my ideations between 2018 and October of 2021. Did you, when you went to the hospital, did you choose to go to the hospital? Four out of the five times that I've been, yes, I've chosen to go. Were they helpful? The first time I went, it was helpful. The second time I went, they completely traumatized me because I was a medical marijuana patient. And so they acted like I was a drug addict and tried to. Jesus. Yes. And I use medical marijuana for pain. I'm in a lot of pain. Of course. Of course. The third one, they were good. The fourth one was involuntary. The uh, November of 2021, I had gone to a doctor about my hip or getting my hip 
replacement done. And he told me that I needed to lose 60 pounds, even though I've already lost well over 70 pounds. Mm-hmm. And he said, I needed to lose another 60. And I'm like, you know, this isn't right, but whatever. And tried to send me to one of those stupid keto places where they make you drink shakes four times a day. And you're supposed to like drop all this weight really fast. I went, my aunt was going to pay for it because again, I'm on disability. I don't have the money for it. And I got about a week and a half in and I had only lost two pounds. And they were telling me that I was going to lose up to seven pounds a week. And I'm like, I'm not getting anywhere with this. And the lady looked at me and she's like, I don't think you're doing it right. And I'm like, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. You know, how am I not doing it right? I'm not eating food. I'm drinking shakes. I'm drinking eight freaking plastic bottles of water a day. Like, you know, like all I'm doing is is in the bathroom because it's all liquid. And I only lost two pounds and I left and I was so upset that she had blamed me and I'm very good at catastrophizing. And so in my head, it was, I'm never going to get this hip replacement. I'm never going to be able to go back to work. I can't enjoy the time with my grandkids. This fucking sucks. I'm fucking done. Like I called my mom and bawled the whole way home. I got home and I had had prescription Xanax and I looked at it and I said, fuck it. This is the day. And I took a handful. This is 2020 or 2021? 2020. It's October of this year. I went to a separate hospital. That fucking kept me for 12 days because of my Medicare payment. Didn't do shit for me and left me without pain medication or anything. I was walking with a walker by the time I left. So many stories of how our medical system fails people over and over again. And then invariably you'll get blamed somehow because they don't have answers, but someone's got to be at fault. So let's just blame the person who's getting fucked. And then that's the other thing. You know, you asked me if I've been diagnosed. They've tried to diagnose me as bipolar. I'm not bipolar. I have CPTSD, complex PTSD. And mine stems from the multiple traumas that I faced. Starting from the age four, it's been shit after shit after shit after shit after shit. Like, when does it stop? (laughs) When in in November of 2020, you took the Xanax, what happened? I took the Xanax. I wrote a note on my phone. Apparently sometime in there, I must have woke up and took more because there were pills on the floor. But my youngest came in and found me and I wouldn't respond to her. So she called my oldest and my oldest came over and my mom came over. I was, I wasn't living with them at the time. I was living in right around the corner from everybody. We're all within walking distance, but I was living um, by myself. I don't remember anything that happened after I fell asleep, but they've told me the ambulance came and they got me in the ambulance. They took me to the local hospital, but I won't go to the local psych ward because that's the one that traumatized me. They couldn't send me where I wanted to go because apparently I became combative when I was coming down. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I don't really remember anything. I, I had bruises on my shoulders, on my wrists, on my leg. I had bruises from the straps, so they had me strapped down. Um, My mom said at one point, I jumped up, grabbed the phone, called her and told her to come pick me up. And my dad was sitting there um, telling her, don't do it, don't do it. And I said something like, tell that shithead to shut up. Like, I don't have any recollection of any of it. I remember waking up in the hospital. They sat me up and they said, you're being transported. And if you're feeling okay, we'll let you go. And I'm like, all right, that's fine. And they did. They let me go. And then what happened the next year in October? This past October, like I said, my dad and I don't get along. I had to move a lot. You know, we have some issues, conflicting issues. I left and I went and stayed a couple nights with my daughter. I I was in a spiral. I just couldn't get out of it. Like I knew I wanted to go check into a hotel and take all the pills that I had. What are my options? And so I, I went back to the hospital. I went to a different hospital because they lied to me and said they had an outpatient program and everything like that. And when I got there, their outpatient program, they're not doing because of COVID. Uh And that was my whole intention of going there. You know, I'm trying to find help. (laughs) You know, it's like I have who takes Medicare. Not a lot of people take Medicare. And there's not a lot of trauma therapists around here. The last one that I just recently went to traumatized me in a session. Like she yelled at me and I had a complete flashback. And it just like, you know, like she could tell she visibly upset me and she apologized and everything. And when I left, I felt fine. But by the time I got home, I'm like, I can't, I can't go back. Like, because of the way I felt every time 
an email popped up or she tried to call me. I'm like, I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to answer the phone. You know what I'm saying? Does that? It, well, it makes sense. Sure. And now it's January. Mm -hmm. In your car, talking to me. Smoking a blunt. <laughs> smoking a blunt. You think you'll try again? You know, it's funny because when you ask that question, I hope not. It's a daily struggle. It's a daily fight sometimes, you know, when those, those thoughts come in, you're better off dead. Your family would be better off without you. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, you're such a burden. And it's like, I try so hard to fight and fight and fight and fight that. And it's like, there's just times where it just becomes overwhelming. And, you know, you either give in or try and find somebody that you can talk to, that you can release it to, you know? Mm -hmm. What helps you other than a blunt and your grandkids? It's going to sound weird trying to picture my family at my funeral, not in a malicious way. Does that make sense? I don't want my mom to have to go through the loss of a child. You know, I don't. Yeah. And so it's like I try to remember those things. You know, these are things and they're kind of depressing things at the same time. But it's like it wow. reminds me, it makes me think, though, when people talk about suicide being selfish. And I think here's yet another example of somebody you who struggles every day. And one of, not the only, but one of the reasons you stay alive is so that your mother doesn't have to go through that experience, which is in some ways the opposite of selfish. Tired of hearing that bullshit. Yeah. When I was working, there was a guy that I had worked with that he was talking one day and he said that he had found his neighbor that had died by suicide. And, you know, it traumatized him. I'm sure it did. I'm not saying that it didn't. And he's like, it's just so fucking selfish. Yeah. And at this point, I'm like, hold on. Let me tell you from my perspective. I said, sometimes you get so in your head, you can't do shit and you're not worth shit. You think you're doing a favor to everybody. Right. How many people in the world do you have to talk to when you're having a tough go of things? It spreads people so thin. I've had friends that say, you know, they can handle it. But when the reality of it happens, they can't. Like, because I'm laying on my bed, staring at pills, bawling my eyes out, you know, like, I want to do this. And at the same time, I don't want to do this. They see that and it scares them. How would you want them to respond? And this is something that maybe someone hears and maybe they can use in their lives. Like, how would you want somebody to be with you when you're going through a difficult time? Um, I do have a friend who told me the last time we were hanging out, um, after all this stuff that had happened, I had actually gone to them and, and they had helped during that situation. So we were hanging out a few weeks ago and she said, if this is what you really want to do, mm. I understand that. It's okay. Mm. And it was just like, all of a sudden, like she saw me before I went into the hospital in October, I was actually at her house and I took the ambulance from her house and I was a mess bawling. I had on shorts and a tank top and I had packed my car and drove to her house and my car shouldn't have gone to her house because it's a good 45 minute drive type thing. That's why I was trying to search on Facebook and stuff, trying to find people that, that don't get scared, that, that say, you know what? I know that feeling. I know so low that, that you don't see anything, you know, tunnel mm -hmm. vision, that low tunnel vision. It's okay. You know, feel it because I have to feel it and then I can get through it. I just came out of a bad episode. And this time I gave myself a date. I said, you know, after Christmas, you know, after the holidays and things, that one kind of helped. And I'm going to try that again in the future when it comes up to set a date. Just because as the date gets nearer, I can, you know, think about it more. So just to be clear, you're talking about a date to end your life? Yeah. And in doing so, you think you're less likely to follow through with it? That's what happened this time. Because when I would get upset, when when it would start to build up again, and I'd be like, okay, remember, remember, you have a day, you have a day, you have a day. And that's how I would talk myself through it. When the day came, I didn't yeah. want to do it. Yeah, whatever works, right? Right? Like, I'm trying to find what I can because I, I've had thoughts before. I know I will probably be the person to end my own life. Do you think that people in your life would be surprised? No. No. 
especially after my last attempt, especially my mom and dad. I think that one kind of brought up, you know, their trauma from me trying to do it at 12 and 14. And you were raised Christian, right? Yeah. When we moved to the South, it was Pentecostal Christian. (laughs) Now, do you believe in that faith? Not anymore. Do you believe in God? If he exists, he's an asshole. (laughs) So when you think about ending your life, and I don't know if you think about it like this. Do you think about just it's over, over, or you're somewhere else, or you're reborn? Well, when I when I did the Xanax overdose, and I said I don't remember anything. I I kind of think it might be like there's part of me that's not going to realize it, but I also believe in reincarnation. You said maybe you'll be reincarnated as a snake, right? Because you think, <laughs> think you're a snake, you're some sort of you're some sort of copperhead or a rattlesnake or something. <laughs> I was just vicious with my bite. Ah. <laughs> Very hissy. Gotcha. You know? <laughs> Venomous, some would say, maybe. All right. So only have a couple more questions, and then I'll open it up if you want anything else to add. That's cool. This question, we've already kind of touched on this a little bit just in, the, in our conversation, but are there any specific myths that you want to dispel? Oh, wanna... just like you said that it's selfish. If I said out loud what I say to myself, they would look at me like, what the fuck is wrong with you? When I get so down on myself, like I am my worst critic. I look at all my failings and I don't see the positive parts, you know, the the good parts. And so that's, I get so focused on the negative and I stay on the negative and it's not, it's not intentional. It's trauma-based responses. Suicide, a lot of suicides, not all of them, but a lot of suicides are trauma-based responses trying to get out of pain. I remember after I got sick and was disabled and I remember laying in my bed, bawling my eyes out again. My aunt was on the phone with me and I'm like, I don't want to live like this. I just hurt. Like my physical body mm-hmm. was racked with so much pain. You know, I mean, like I didn't want to deal with it anymore. I was on hydrocodone. My youngest was in elementary school. She's watching me go through this. I was two different parents. You know, I was able to do things with my oldest and we were able to go places. And when my, my youngest was younger, we, after we would go places, we would go on vacations and things like that. I got sick and all of it stopped. It's not coming from a selfish place. It's coming from how am I supposed to live with this? It's coming from pain. I think I'm not trying to simplify your words or put words in your mouth, but it's coming from pain. Absolutely. That's it. All kinds of pain. Yes. Mental, physical, all of it. Well, it's interesting. You, you, you had said, uh, I don't know the exact words, but if people could hear what was going on in my head they might think this or that. And and one of the reasons I do the podcast is actually, and I'm not going to ask you to share that if you don't want to, but yes, there will be people who think, wow, what's wrong with her? Oh my God. <laughs> there will also be people that hear it and say, oh, okay, I'm not the only one. So thus I always encourage people if they're comfortable to share that because yeah, there will be haters, but there will be people who are like, okay, you might never hear from them, right? Mm-hmm. Person in Texas or Zimbabwe, or who knows? Yeah. Right. Oh, but this woman in Springfield, she gets it. And I have those same thoughts. That's what it's about. So, well, and that's what intrigued me when I first started listening to the podcast. And I'm just like, oh, okay. I'm not alone. Like, I, I, I want people that I can say, this is how I felt when that was going on. And, you know, I, I, I get what you're feeling. I understand what you're feeling. And I'll sit with you and, and, and listen to you while you feel this. And I don't want solutions sometimes or a lot of times because there are no solutions sometimes. And then people are like, oh, you're just coming up with excuses. And it's like, right. these are legitimate barriers. Like people don't like that. You don't have solutions. They have a real hard time with that. And here's a, here's a just a, something to the listeners. And I rarely sort of call them out. I'm not calling anyone out. You look, if you want to offer solutions, you know, it depends on your relationship. But first, you got to hear the person, like really hear them. Because your solutions are probably not even accurate to start with because you don't even know what the fuck they're going through because you just cut them off and don't yeah. listen. But number two, if you want the person to hear your solutions and maybe act on them if they feel right, they need to trust you. Absolutely. That's another reason why all the reasons when you don't listen, and that might take a long time to listen, by the way, it might not, it might be more than two minutes. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and then people are like, call the suicide hotline. Have you heard the horror stories? And even if the person, I was a crisis text line operator or counselor for a while, and they do some good work and there is a place for it, for sure. Mm-hmm. But that is not an answer for most people most of the time. It is, it is, it is sometimes a stopgap crises, someone to talk to who just at least will let you vent and maybe give you resources, which might include hospitalization. Yes, all of those things. But if you think that is a panacea, you are wrong. It is not. End of story. End of story. Full stop. And if you're the person who someone comes to talk to, guess what? They came to you. Why are you like fucking outsourcing empathy? Why are you saying go over there? Not that person over there, you here now. And then they post, reach out to me, reach out for help. And you do. And then they're scared. They're willing to listen to you to offer solutions for you to follow through and get better. Right. That's their default. That's their starting point. I think it's solution-based. And in another sort of way of framing it, I think we tend to be judgment-based, even if we don't realize it. Mm -hmm. And if you could somehow, and it's not necessarily easy, move away from that model, so to speak, into more of like legitimately, if people understood that listening wasn't just a kind of nice thing to do or a means to an end, it was actually part of that solution you're looking for. That was actually part of the solution that you want to offer them. And you're not, you're not, you're not offering that. Right. Like, talk about irony. That's the greatest gift you can give them and part of the answer. And you're not doing it. If it's somebody that knows you, and, and you do have that connection with them, it's easier to open up. You call a hotline for me, for me. Let me say that for me. It's easier to open up if I have a connection with somebody. Sure. Whereas if I don't have a connection, I disassociate from my traumas and everything comes out very factual. And then once I default to that factual mode, it, it shuts down, you know, my emotions. And then, and then what's the point of even... You're saying a few words and nodding your head. And they're going to come up with some thing that who the fuck knows it's some acronym or abbreviate who knows. Yeah. They, they do, you know, it's CBT based, like cognitive based therapy. I suck at cognitive based therapy. I need dialectal based therapy, but where I live, I would have to go to St. Louis to access it. I live in the fucking capital wow. of the state. And we, we have the shittiest healthcare. I go to yeah. a smaller city outside of Springfield for my healthcare now because I've been through everybody here. Yeah. I and I've been treated like shit. I've been blacklisted because I had to stand up for myself because I have a rare illness. And then on top of the rare illness, I have a rare form of the rare illness. The type that I have, only 5% of the people that get sarcoidosis get it the way that I have it. I had a doctor tell me that he was straight up told me he was not going to treat me because he did not know what to do. He was so scared to treat me. Wow. We really are failing people profoundly and it is not their fault. Some of them are going to end their lives. Let's just call it what it is. Those of us who aren't in upper middle class and above, you know, we struggle to find good health care. We struggle to find these things because we don't matter. That's fair. Maybe if you had like a viral TikTok video, you'd matter now, right? <laughs> right? This is what we're like. This is what we're this is what we're using as a benchmark. Sounds like we're complaining and and we are, but the reality is and, and this is an echo chamber because most people who hear this that are, that are going to be finding this podcast or, or listening every week, they get it. Most of them are probably nodding their heads like, yeah, like we're doing right now. So I don't know who that to hear this where it might make a damn difference. And that's OK, because the main thrust of all of this for this podcast is just to help people feel a little less shitty and a little less alone. And so great. We can do that by talking openly. But. Like, let's not kid ourselves. Really, I hate the word the system because it sounds like we're angry sophomores in college who want to have a revolution. And don't, but it's true. It's it really is. a fucked up, shitty, pathetic. And we do have the resources and the money. We just don't use it for some things that really could help people. And people are dying and you blame victims or you blame people in pain. Just stop. <laughs> 
And you won't. And I don't know what the point of that whole rant was. To let people know that that you understand that you get it. It is. It is a completely fucked up system. You know, they're talking about sending out crisis prevention on 911 calls and things like that in different areas or sending out social workers as opposed to police officers for certain 911 calls, especially when it comes to suicides and things like that. I The doctor's office has called on me before because I went off on them and I told them I might as well be dead compared to the medical care I'm getting. And they considered that a suicide threat. Yep. They called the police on me. And then when you respond in a way, somebody can't even use the word. And then of course you're an intelligent person or you're not going to use the word moving forward because you know what's going to happen, but it doesn't change anything. You're still thinking of the thing. You still want to use the word because it's the right word to describe what you're going through, but you can't say the word because the cops are going to send you that place. Your counselor is going to get freaked the fuck out because God forbid you kill yourself on their watch. So they're going to send you to the hospital. You just get silenced, which, oh, by the way, is one of the worst things for someone in any kind of pain is to be silenced. Our society doesn't allow for that because then it turns into mind your own business. It also doesn't teach people how to communicate Mm-mm. at all. It really doesn't. I mean, we, we a little bit here and there. And maybe if you go to some fancy private school, they have a class on that. But for the most part, we just don't learn it. And it's not always intuitive. And you don't just figure it out. There are people that do, you know, but the minority of people can figure out this stuff. It's not, it's not a justification for communicating that way, but we don't learn it. And that's a reflection of a culture that doesn't emphasize it. And most don't. I mean, I don't think in other countries, they necessarily teach this stuff, which is a little weird. I mean, I think the stuff we learn in school matters, but I don't know. Does it matter more than this? I'm not sure. I honestly think that communication is more important than anything, because unless you learn to communicate, you're not going to be able to learn things anyway. Or not be an asshole. It goes so far. So far. It's hard to measure, but if you really, really legitimately want to talk about suicide prevention or even suicide reduction, which I look at it differently. I look at it more as like suffering prevention. Mm -hmm. That would just Sean's opinion here would go further than anything else, but it's a longer term game and it's a really hard thing to measure. Whereas me saying call the 1-800 number is a little easier and quicker. And of course, there's a lot of things that can help. But you not learning how to listen or wanting to listen and thinking that call the 1-800 number or go to the hospital is really helping. It's not really helping very much. I'm not saying don't go to the hospital or don't call the 1-800 number because they can be very helpful. But uh, you not knowing or wanting to learn how to communicate with some empathy and listen, um, that's the bigger problem. Do you uh, anything else else you want to, to share? I want a community. And just find a community of people that can relate to each other and just say, empathize with each other. You know what? I may not know your exact struggle, but I know the struggle. I wish I had that. I wish I could find that. And I wish more people would be open to it. I mean, it's hard when you get into the groups because people don't want to talk. Well, I shouldn't say that because not everybody reacts the same way. But for me, I get in there and I'm just like, oh my gosh, what if I say something stupid? And because that's where, you know, that's where a lot of my issues are. You know, I don't want to sound stupid. (laughs) I just wish there was more of a community. You know, the more you hold it in, the darker it becomes, the harder it becomes to, to, to come out of your shell to come out of that episode you know it's like little things little baby steps my mom just saying hi to me and me responding to her as opposed to grunting and it's like uh, okay maybe I'm feeling a little better but but you know something's gonna come along to make me feel worse I just you know it, trying to like you find something to be less isolating to be right. less holding it in I it would it would be phenomenal to be like okay guys I I feel like I don't want to be here today. I don't want to exist. I wish I was never born. I mean, I told my mom, I wish she would have aborted me. Who does that? People in pain do that. Yeah. And if I could say that to somebody else, as opposed to saying it to my mom, somebody could be like, you know what? I feel the same way. This really fucking sucks. 
because it's not taught. We we're taught to bottle and and not feel. I mean, especially as children, we're taught, you know, our emotions when we're crying and upset and unable to process things. I was taught, quit crying, I'll give you something to cry about, you know, like that was the generation. And, you know, now more so with my grandson when he's crying, you know, I'm trying, what's going on? You know, trying to, to change that, what my parents didn't know. You know, my parents had to both work and there were three kids because our society sucks. It's so funny when I hear, not funny, but when I hear somebody say that, quit crying or I'll give you something to cry about. I'm thinking, but they're already crying. They already have something they're crying about. Wouldn't it be maybe better to figure out what they're crying about? Now, I'm not a parent and I know parents listening would be like, shut up, Sean. But, you know, I mean, look, I know people say all kinds of things and it's frustrating and I'm not trying to invalidate or minimize that at all. It's just like, okay. Yeah, just to have somebody validate those feelings, to have somebody validate, you know, you're hurting. He's crying for a reason. I have a grandson and a granddaughter and they both share the exact same birthday. You know, when they're both upset, just trying to console them and, and you know, it's okay to cry. It's okay to have emotions. It's okay to be angry. Right. And And now we have to learn coping mechanisms with that and and you know okay so you're upset how do we deal with this whereas when i was upset it was quit it you're fine there's nothing wrong with you i want to do a whole sketch comedy thing on what people actually mean when they say certain things so for example maybe it wasn't your dad but when someone says quit crying or I'll give you something to cry about. And I think there's just an opportunity for humor in a way that could actually work where it's like what they really mean is I didn't get the love and support I needed when I was a child. And therefore I have no idea how to deal with other people's feelings. And right now you're making me feel uncomfortable. So instead of asking you how you're doing or why you're crying, I'm going to say quit crying or I'll give you something to cry about. That could be funny, Jessica. It could be. I mean, you know, comedy, comedy brings across a lot of points. Yep. <laughs> same way people write music about it, because music can bring around those same points. Well, listen, <laughs> I appreciate you taking all this time and sharing so much in your uh, in your car outside your home in Springfield, Illinois. Well, I appreciate you having me on the show. I mean, it's nice to be able to, to have a conversation. Indeed, man. So I'm a bald dude in a kitchen in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and you're a woman in a car in Springfield, Illinois. (laughs) And we're talking about this stuff because so few people either want to or are able to have these conversations. They're hard conversations to have. That's the other part of it is being able, being physically able to speak about it. You know, Mm. sometimes it's hard. It is. I mean, as much as I dislike technology, I'm glad it exists sometimes for reasons like this. We would never be having this conversation. All right. Well, listen, go get out of your car. I'm about to go lay down. (laughs) Get some rest. I appreciate it. And uh, I'll touch base with you soon. Thanks again, Jessica. All right. Well, thank you, Sean. I really appreciate you doing this. I really do. Happy to do it. Take care. You too. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. Special thanks to Jessica up in Illinois. Thank you, Jessica. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to share your story, I'd love to talk. Please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com or on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. We may also have our website up, SuicideNoted.com, where you can learn more about the podcast and reach out via an audio voicemail message. That's one way you can share some thoughts about the podcast, ask a question, give some feedback, whatever you want to do. I'd love to talk more with this community. Now that we have almost 10,000 people listening every month, let's expand this stuff. Let's learn a little bit more about each other and create more conversations around these things that we typically don't talk about. That is all for episode number 97. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.